0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guests are Chris R. Langley, Catherine E. Macmillan, and Russell Newton. And we're talking to Chris, Catherine, and Russell about their new volume, The Clergy in Early Modern Scotland, just published in the St. Andrew's Studies in Scottish History series by Boydell in this year, 2021. Chris, Catherine, Russell, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, Thanks. Paul. It's great to see you, or from the listener's perspective to hear you. Um, Can I ask before we begin talking about the book itself, how did you come, each of you, to be interested in this subject and how was the project itself born?
3: Yeah, maybe I'll uh, start on that. So. Um, this is Russell speaking for the, for the listeners. Um, and so uh, I was really interested in um, Scottish clergy. I've been working uh, when we first discussed this project on my PhD pro, uh, PhD thesis, which was on uh, a Scottish minister, uh, William Guild, uh, an Abedonian uh, minister. And um, it was really, uh, as I was working on that, that uh, Chris, Catherine and I, I met uh, different So Catherine and I were uh, PhD students together. Uh, Chris and I met at uh, at the Ecclesiastical History Society conference down in London um, and and realised that we had sort of overlapping interests in uh, the the Scottish clergy. And so um, I guess my interest came more from a biographical route of of working on on a Scottish clergyman. Um, But but Chris and Catherine uh, maybe came from a slightly different place to that. Um, We uh, initially actually put together a panel at the Scottish Church History Society conference in in Edinburgh in 2016, I think. Uh, And and it was off the back of that that we we thought maybe there there were, there was some, uh, I guess, uh, opportunity to pursue pursue looking at the Scottish clergy a little bit more um, and that they um, maybe needed uh, more attention than they'd been given up until that point. And so uh, off the back of that, we put together uh, a one-day conference which uh, brought together uh, some historians who were interested in the Scottish clergy uh, and um, by the time we'd done that we, we felt that actually yeah, there really was scope to say more uh, about the, the Scottish ministry uh, in the early modern period particularly between around 1500 and 1700 uh, and uh, with, with that in mind we sort of pursued putting the, the volume together so I guess my interest in it was, was really com- comes from that more uh, biographical angle I I'm guess I'm interested in I'm trained in, as a historian of Christianity I'm interested in uh, things like biblical exegesis and sermons uh, and maybe slightly different interest to, to Chris and Catherine so maybe they can speak to, to the, the things that brought them to the project as well Yeah, um, it seems like a
1: long time ago when we first started thinking about this project um, and so it's nice to see the book come together and then retrace those, those steps that brought us here, so from, from my perspective, um, I suppose it's how commonplace ministers were in, in 16th and 17th century Scottish life um, and how they are a regular fixture in studies of the early world and early one Scotland. Um, but seemingly, they, due to their kind of commonality, they are um, regularly glossed over. And I think it started to become a little bit of a a trope of Scottish historiography in some way, maybe even reformed scholarship, that looking at ministers is a return to the great man history or some sort of hagiographical approach. Whereas actually the minister was at the heart of a whole range of theological, social, political dynamics that were were going on at parish level, at provincial level and at at national level. So the, the minister being at the heart of that um, as a really important kind of node for thinking about social history in particular is what is what interests me. And the other aspect of this that I think that from a reform perspective is that we think about these, these reformers, we think about Knox, we think about Calvin and the commemorations of individuals like that, but actually the, you know, 1100 or so parishes in Scotland are, were all staffed by an individual and um, who may not have been uh, as, as well remembered or revered as one of those figures i just mentioned but nevertheless they have a really important part in their day-to-day lives of, the, of their parishioners and to, to me at least getting into that kind of social aspect of of um how does a minister interact with his congregation how does his how did his, his theology translate to his day-to-day interactions with them? i mean we can talk about this later, but my chapter opens with a minister taking a swing at a mason. And so you and I mean, not really a common occurrence, but just one of the potential kind of dynamics or interactions that, that we see. And all of the chapters really have have an element of that. And so from my perspective, it was mission accomplished, I suppose, in, in getting us to think a little bit more about that and, and maybe drawing our attention away from some of those great figures. And starting to think about ministers as, as much more kind of complex uh, figures in their own way, right, I suppose.
2: Mm. And Catherine, what about you? How did you come into this field of study?
4: Well, um, as Russell said, uh, our PhDs at Edinburgh uh, uh, overlapped. And um, my focus was on um, uh, the lived experience of religion in northeast Scotland in the, um, just after the Reformation and up to about 1610. And, um, during the, the, the primary research for that was the Kirk Session records or the, uh, uh, Kirk records in general presbytery as well. And what struck me from them and I, and, and, um, what strikes most people is how human the records are. And, um, how interesting <laughs> these people, the, the particularly ministers that we think of as very um, staid and dull, or um, uh, somehow um, inhuman, um, are actually um, uh, very um, well human. I suppose uh, there's a uh, one of our contributors, Felicity Maxwell, has a great quote in her chapter that I think really summarizes my approach to this. And it's that um, the book is prioritizing the human over the abstract. And so as Chris says, it's it's looking at the par- the minister in the parish context uh, interacting with his parishioners, neighbors, um, own family. And it's um, also using biography to, to really get a sense of the minister himself. Mm.
2: Now, I mean, it's a really remarkable book in, in lots of ways. Of course, there are many edited volumes published every year, but but very few of them could really claim to be as groundbreaking as this volume is because, as you've indicated, it's, it's a volume that's focused on individuals deeply human, but, but individuals who are absolutely at the centre of local life, of parish life. So that being the case... Why has it taken until now for scholars really to begin to get to to grips with this? Why has the study of the clergy, even the study of preaching, been so often so marginal to the study of early modern Scotland?
1: Well, if you think about early modern Scottish history as an industry, there's only so many of us. And so these other kind of um, impulses, these different waves of scholarship have encompassed the minister, but never got to grips with him, as, as you say, this this human entity in the, in the middle of a network of web of parish relationships. So I think there's also this, as I said before, there's this fear that looking at, at ministers is, is going to be unfashionable, is going to start um, perhaps unpicking things that we don't want to talk about as historians or theologians for that matter. That, and ultimately it's about I think think our issues with this as a topic come from how challenging it is because what we often fall into are stereotypes of clerics Um, and having to kind of establish ways of dealing with that complexity. How do we pigeonhole such an array of different types of people? It becomes incredibly challenging as a a historian then. Um, So whereas we have the, the, the phrase clergy on the front of the book, actually, that group is incredibly amorphous, you know? And so and it, it's trying to get to the, to the complexity of that experience. And I think, to be honest with you, I think that's a challenge. And I think that's, if we think about, about, about modern scholarship as well, perhaps modern scholarship kind of mitigates against thinking about those complex processes. But the irony, of course, is that the material that we have, as Catherine said really well before, Kirk sessions, presbyteries, synods, diaries, personal correspondence, love poetry, etc. All actually helps us add flesh to that humanity. Um, It just takes very concerted effort in terms of the archival research to be able to uncover that. Russell, have I done a, a, a decent job there? Yeah,
3: I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we kind of trace out in the introduction to the book, um, is, is really the kind of, I guess, the journey, the historiography of, of the Scottish Reformation has been on really since the 19th century. And, and you know, we, we we look at how actually, um, if you go back to the 19th century, that there were lots of accounts of ministers, particularly very prominent ministers, people like John Knox, people like uh, Alexander Henderson or Samuel Rutherford. Um, and they were almost sort of hagiographical accounts, these uh, accounts that looked to see uh, the, 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 great man of history, uh, directed by divine providence to overthrow the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and, um, I guess we noticed that really actually, um, the, the, the historiography had moved away from the clergy because they resisted this kind of ha- hagiographical trend. Um, and they actually placed other forces center stage in the process. So, um, had made the, uh, the Reformation, and when I say the Reformation I really mean the kind of long process of, of reform in Scotland um, about other forces whether that was uh, borough elites or whether it's uh, the, the uh, interactions and, and the role of uh, the laity and the community and, and culture more widely in shaping uh, the Reformation in Scotland, and all those things are really valuable and important um, but I guess our concern was that the clergy were being a little bit written out of of the picture entirely and so we wanted to bring them back in centre stage into uh, the narrative of uh, early modern Scotland uh, in in the ways that Chris and Catherine have have described already, Um, but wanted to bring them back at at that more human level, um, acknowledging that there there was a diversity of personalities, um, that they they were often uh, flawed, that they Uh, taking more stock of the role of their families behind the scenes uh, and not simply uh, what happened in the pulpit uh, as as much as I love talking about what happened in the pulpit uh, but uh, recognising actually that that all of those facets make up Mm -hmm. these men of God, these people who serve uh, within the the Scottish Kirk Um, and so um, I I guess ours is an exercise in, in trying to, if they've been the clergy have been sort of sent into historiographical exile, trying to bring them back uh, and, and place them uh, at the front of the story. Mm.
2: And, I mean, I, I'm very struck by um, all three of you mentioning the um, exigencies and variety of, of ministerial life. Um, Catherine emphasising their their deep humanity, the humanity of their experience. Chris, that um, they could be the agents of violence. Um but also, as a number of chapters indicate, they were the subjects of violence, and they were frequently deeply unpopular. So, given that they were agents of change, or agents of moral reformation, or upholding some idea of godliness that was not, oft- not always widely shared uh, in individual parishes, why did men take up this position?
4: Uh, well, um, first of all, I don't, I don't think they were frequently deeply unpopular. I think there are are Uh, With any um, profession, especially, I I suppose the the modern phrase is a public-facing role, that you're going to have disputes. And some of these disputes can um, broil over into um, uh, national crises. Um, But um, I think for the most part, they get along well and they do their job well. And to take this, um, pick up this vocation, is 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 something that must have been um, deeply considered. That this isn't uh, this isn't a job into which one just falls. It requires an tense and rigorous education. It requires um, a series of uh, uh uh what am I trying to say it requires uh it requires other people to 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 vet you and to um, approve you and place you and so it's it's something that you're really gonna wanna have to do. And I and I think the most ministers are committed to the word and they're committed to preaching and and, and doing the best for their communities as they see it in in terms of theology and doctrine um it was um that i think if, if it if it wasn't for that commitment it's it's not a terribly glamorous job it's often poorly paid it can be itinerant there's a lot of admin involved um there is of course um uh personal interpersonal uh roles with parishioners, uh, parish elites, national elites. Sometimes you have um, the monarch uh, involved in uh, local disputes. So it's, it's um, even though we can see ill-tempered or ill-behaved or um, poor ministers, ministers who are poor at their job, uh, I think it, overall they're a um, competent, sincere um and um committed bunch
0: Mm. i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: They 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 were sincere, weren't they? Many of them wrote a great deal about their vocation. They idealized it in some respects, and I suppose tried their best to live up to those ideals. How how did they imagine what their role was all about? What what did it mean to be a minister? Yeah well I think um certainly
3: well one of the things that um Jane Dawson very nicely draws out for us in, in, in the afterwards. I guess we've used on the title word clergy, but actually they prefer to refer to themselves as ministers or preachers. And preaching was really central to their identity and, and their sense of vocation. Um, as, as Protestants, they, they were, uh, people committed to the Bible, uh, and to the authority of the Bible and to, um, the fact that it was, uh, scripture that was uh going to be effective in uh, in all that they were doing in their ministries and so they, they place that front center and they often place preaching uh front center and um, one of the things that's interesting about when they preach is they preach about the bible but actually often they tell us quite a lot about what they think about who an ideal minister should be as well uh, we get um, a good glimpse into um through what they they say in the pulpit about what they actually expected of those who were undertaking their role. Uh, And um, the the first chapter in the the book, um, written by uh, Mickey Brock, uh, really focuses on this. And she talks about uh, preaching about the ideal minister in in post-Reformation Scotland. Um, And really there she, uh, you know, draws out uh, these ideas that Um, about the importance of the delivery of the sermon. I mean, obviously, those who were preaching were to be committed to reformed theology. That was um, first and foremost for them. That was of of, of the utmost importance. Um, But but Mickey also really draws out uh, the idea that sermons were meant to be clear. Uh, They uh, were meant to be relatively short, um, short by standards of the early modern period, which meant that they normally meant to be at least an hour long. Um, and so on. But by the standards of the day, they weren't to be long-winded and that they were to be uh, delivered with uh, wisdom uh, and and so forth. And so um, there was a sense in which the person who was uh, the ideal minister was to be skilled in what they did. They would be skilled in this task of preaching. Uh, Now, that uh, when we emphasize preaching, that's not to diminish other aspects of their role and maybe we'll we'll be able to come on to some of those uh, as well. But certainly uh, they were to be skilled in preaching, and they were also to be godly in their lifestyle. That a lot is made of uh, counterfeit preachers; those who um, uh, don't have uh, a, a godly lifestyle uh, that is um, in keeping with what, with what they're preaching, with their message, uh, it is a, a, a kind of a resistance to those who are mere flatterers who, from the pulpit, simply tell people what they want to hear. Uh, instead, the minister is to tell, the good, godly minister, at least, is meant to tell people hard truths, uh, and they have to be humble, uh, in, in their, um, in, in how they go about things. And, and ultimately, there's have to be people who are, uh, uh, applying the truths they're preaching about to themselves. They're not simply to be people who are, um, engaged in, in a form of entertainment when they uh, step up into the pulpit. Uh, and so, uh, now, one of the things Mickey recognises, and I think probably the ministers themselves recognise, is that they didn't always live up to these ideals. Uh, and um, part of what's interesting about how they preach uh, about the ideal minister is, is sort of managing expectations of their hearers, managing their expectations that, uh, that, that the work of ministry is hard and it's difficult, uh, and so that they, they shouldn't be um, have, have too high expectations of their, their ministers at times. And so Uh, There was this process of negotiation uh, between uh, the preacher and these hearers, Uh, but certainly they they liked to talk about um, what uh, an ideal minister was like.
2: And obviously those who perhaps might have been most concerned with the idealisation of the minister would be his wife and his children. It's quite remarkable that a number of the chapters in the volume raise the issue of clerical families, don't they? What, What was it? that made ministers who faced opprobrium, even hostility, what made them eligible as potential husbands?
4: Why marry a minister? Um, well, uh, I think, again, it, it comes down to commitment to the word, a belief, uh, a deep belief and commitment to that it is a demanding role um, as one of our uh, chapters discusses it's um, requires uh, essentially almost when it goes maybe so far as co ministry but it's certainly supporting the minister in um, in uh, at home so in, in order to enable him to carry out ministry fully and so I think again it's it's um, as another chapter shows it it's uh uh love obviously uh, <laughs> um can come into it and uh again, I think it's this um willingness to devote their lives to this cause
2: one of the one of the ways in which the book is organized is to emphasize varieties of experience across space and time in the last clutch of chapters, i suppose. There's material on the Orkneys, on ministerial experience in Edinburgh. John Drury, who's an exceptional figure in many respects, and Hugh Binning, um, minister during the Covenanting period and early Cromwellian period over in Glasgow. So what do these chapters tell us about the variety of clerical experience across Scotland and through time? I think they tell us
1: that it's varied, as, we, as we've already mentioned. But I more than that, I think it's suggesting the different personalities of men who are becoming ministers. We're moving towards a place where we're considering what the minister faced in response. It's not just ministers going on moral crusade in parishes. It's for example, like in Michael Graham's chapter thinking about how uh, Bor- uh, Borough elites in St. Andrews will react to certain things a minister says in a pulpit or the um the uh, landowners in leasing, Clement McNulty's chapter, and, and how that influences elections of clerics. So ultimately, it's that it's that variation, but it's a, in a much richer way than I think we saw up to now. This isn't just a, a binary thing of urban and rural Scotland, or you know, clerics who are scholars first and then preachers second. There's there's a much more complex picture going on here, and, and I, think, I, I would hope that we, that the, the chapters in this book prevent us making those simplifications in the in the future. I mean, if you think about preachers today, the reasons for people going into that vocation are numerous. And I think we should do our, our subjects of historical inquiry the same credit of considering the complexity of their experiences, their desires, their motivations, and their contexts above all, being a preacher in St Andrews is not, was not the same as being a preacher in Kirkwall, for example. And I think the chapters in the volume, in in those case studies from scholars from a variety of different backgrounds, actually do a really lovely job of, of putting that texture on on ministry. Yeah, very good, Russell. Well, yeah, I think I would just
3: I would add to to what Chris is saying in, in terms of you see that even and this isn't really the focus of any of the, the chapters themselves, but it comes across the whole. The, the kind of difference in temperaments in, in ministers. You know, I, I guess, coming back to my earlier point of the kind of figures who, who proliferated in, in 19th century literature uh, were often known for their, their burning zeal. And, and I guess some of those ministers uh, are this. People like James Sharp in, in Leith, you know, goes on this kind of reform, moral reformation uh, in the parish of South Leith to, to bring about change there. But actually, when you look at people like John Jury, uh, or uh, who has this kind of more ironic ministry, uh, or you look at uh, Hugh Binning, who Nathan Hood discusses in, in the final chapter of the book, who uh, really preaches uh, about uh, moderation in his sermons. He wants to take uh, love uh, and love for God uh, and uh, and love of neighbour uh, as being um, the, the the virtue that, that moderates the affections and brings them into right alignment. Uh, you, you see actually this kind of variety of temperaments there. Uh, again, quite a contrast when you look at people like, uh, David Black and Robert Wallace, who are discussed, discussed in Michael, uh, Graham's chapter, who, uh, end up in, uh, all sorts of fraught, uh, political disputes in St. Andrews. And so, um, again, I guess one of the things we've, we've mentioned already, but this, this very human aspect of, uh, of ministry and this, and this very, this diversity of, of ministers, I think, um, comes through. I think one of the other things to say is you know we obviously tend to emphasize um, uh, the, the, the clergy in early one Scotland as being reformed, and that's because of uh, the, the settlement that really comes about after 1560. But uh, in Beth Tapscott's chapter, uh, one of the things you really see is actually the variety of, of, of confessions that are influencing Scotland in those early stages, uh, Lutheran, uh, Zwinglian, uh, and so forth. And so actually, um, I, I guess it's, uh, it, the volume encourages us to be attentive, to do that hard work that Chris is describing and think about, uh, who, it, who are these clergy that we're talking about? What are they like temperamentally, not, and as well as geographically, uh, where do they sit, but where do they sit theologically? Um, and I guess as a lot of recent scholarship is, is pushing us to think about some of the diversity within Reformed theology, even to think more carefully about that. Uh, when we think about the Scottish clerics as well, rather than assuming that they are um, monolithic in in some way.
2: Yes, a a very important agenda, isn't it? So the the, the book has really set out what might be a manifesto for, I'm tempted to use the word revolution, I know that's a little bit over the top, but certainly a sea change in the way we're going to think about the subject the book is about, isn't it? I mean, it is quite a radical agenda for rethinking in fundamental ways. The the, the role, the function, the personality, the idealisation, the challenges facing, the implications of being a minister in early modern Scotland. So what comes next? How are you as a group of scholars or as individuals going to take this agenda and push it forward and, and, and really help us see in some more granularity what, what it was, what it meant to be a minister in early modern Scotland.
1: And for me, the, the answer to this, uh, and I'm going to plug another project here, is mapping the Scottish Reformation. So, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in trying to aggregate a lot of this information to say, okay, as Russell said before, we know so much about ministers like Knox, Melville and others, but there are many others elsewhere in the country that we don't know much about, and that's got a genealogical aspect, but it's also important for us thinking about broader trends like migration how long people are serving in parishes and other things like that so um i think the scottish reformation is is uh, where my attentions lie at the moment very good
3: yeah i mean i would I'd say chris is, is doing valuable work he's, he's slightly underselling it there really in, in terms of taking hugh scott's fasty uh, which was been for many years a repository and, and, and bringing it into the digital age and, and correcting it and updating it. And so Chris is, is doing us all a great service, really, um, bringing together that, that data, him and, and Mickey Brock, was involved in that as well. Um, in, in terms of my projects, uh, next, uh, I'm working on an intellectual biography of William Guild, who was the subject of a doctoral thesis. Uh, and so I guess trying to take this, um, uh, approach of being attentive to ministers and uh, the particularities of their life, and their context and their ministry, uh, and apply that process to one individual. Uh, I'm also uh, working uh, alongside Matthew Bogan uh, on uh, an edition of some of Andrew Gray's sermons, so I'm looking forward to um, making those more widely available. We discuss, I discuss some of those in uh, in the chapter, uh, my chapter in the book, and so uh, I'll be working on those as well.
4: And. Uh... Um, I'm uh, currently um, working on um, my monograph on um, uh, Reform Northeast Scotland and working on this has certainly informed how I will be revising some of that and all, a new project on charitable fundraising for co-religionists in Europe and looking uh, particularly at the role of the minister in coordinating all of that.
2: Well, those sound like important and fascinating projects uh, and and research questions. But for now, Chris, Catherine, Russell, um, I want to say thank you for coming on to the program to talk about your new book, The Clergy in Early Modern Scotland, just published by Boydell in the St Andrew's Studies in Scottish History series. Um, It's a great book. Uh, It is genuinely groundbreaking. And I think there's going to be a generation of scholarship having to respond to, to to the questions the outline here. So thank you and thanks for your time in coming and sharing your work and being willing to talk about it. Thanks for having us.
4: Thank you. Thanks
2: Well thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.